Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, if I've not had a chance to meet you, my name is Aaron, uh, the lead pastor for Riverwood, and uh, you're going to have to forgive me for a moment, but Courtney Jewell is in, I mean, uh, uh, not Courtney Jewell, but uh, Violet Jewell is in the house, Courtney's uh, little girl. Uh, in case you, yes, yes, in case you missed the announcement, several weeks ago, uh, Violet was born at 32 weeks, a uh, little tiny preemie. And uh, she has just continued to thrive and thrive and thrive. And so now she's finally here. She's been out for, what, a couple weeks? Uh, yeah. But, uh, when, when, when was her official due date? So, yeah, so next Sunday is her official due date, so, uh, uh, and she's already here and doing great, so it's so good to see you and see her. Um, my son, Zion, absolutely loves Violet, so anytime they're over or lands on FaceTime, Zion's like, oh, can I see Violet? Uh, so, maybe, I think Zion's online with us today, so uh, yes, your girlfriend is here in-house, so you, sh- you should have been here, all right? Uh, Today we're continuing on in our series in Colossians, so we're going to finish up chapter one today, and I want to start by telling you about Deb. Uh, When I was the young adult pastor at a Bible church back in Cedar Rapids, uh, Deb made an appointment to come see me, walks into my office, sits down on the couch, and begins to share that she just feels lost. It turns out that the year before, she had been in seminary. She completed up the year, though, and she didn't have enough money to pay for the second year, so she wasn't sure what she was going to do. Well, her very serious boyfriend, they were talking marriage, he was living in Cedar Rapids, working a job, so she just moved to be close to him. And yet, as she just got a job and, and was just you know, doing life, she just felt lost. And so for some reason, she thought maybe I could help. So I just began to ask her questions. Well, why were you doing seminary? Well, I want to be a hospital chaplain. Well, why do you want to be a hospital chaplain? And she began to tell me this story. She, in high school, decided to volunteer at their local hospital, and she ended up volunteering in the chaplain's office. Well, one day, she's in the chaplain's office, and he is not there. So she's just doing some tasks, organizing. I don't know what she was doing, but all of a sudden, a nurse walks in, says, where's the chaplain at? And, well, he's, he's not here right now. He's gone. And the nurse says, oh, that's too bad, because we have a woman who's actively dying, and the family is asking for the chaplain to come. And Deb just apologizes, I'm so sorry, he's gone right now. And then the nurse looks at Deb and says, well, could you come? Well, Deb internally freaks out. She's thinking like, well, no, like I'm not a chaplain. And yet next thing she knows, she's blurting out, oh, okay, sure. And so she grabs a Bible off the shelf and she follows this nurse. And the whole entire way, she is just nervous. Like, what am I doing? I have no idea what I'm going to say, what to do. But then she walked into the room And I still remember to this day what Deb said to me. She says, Aaron, I walked into a room where a woman was dying, and yet I came alive. She said, it was like the Holy Spirit took over. I knew exactly what to say, what scripture to read, how to pray. I stayed with them for a couple of hours until she passed. We prayed together, and they were hugging me. They were in tears. And when I walked out of that room, she said, two thoughts came to my mind. First, what in the world just happened? And second, Now I know why God created me. Now, I want you to think about what that moment was like for Deb. She walks into a room where clearly the family is suffering. A beloved mom, wife, grandma is breathing her last breaths on this earth. They are grieving, and yet she suddenly came alive. There was hope in the middle of this darkness. There was joy in the the middle of the sadness. That in the midst of the suffering, there was light. 
you, I, I don't expect you to have had an exact, you know, replication of that moment in your own life. But it's possible that you've had a situation where you're in the midst of some sort of suffering, and yet there's been this, like, hope, joy, peace right in the midst of it. A couple of examples I thought of. If you are a parent, maybe your child was really, really sick, and yet in the midst of their sickness as they are suffering, and it's therefore by extension you as a parent are suffering, you felt closer to your child than you ever thought possible. Like you had no idea your heart could contain that much love. And while you hope your child never ever has to go through that again, you, you, you hope that you know, no one else ever has to face that, you still find yourself grateful for what happened to you emotionally with your child. Another example I thought of is, is someone loses their job and, and they're looking for another you know, job and, and they just aren't getting one and they're frustrated like, God, why did you allow me to lose my job? How are we going to make ends meet? And then suddenly this opportunity comes along a person needs help. There, there's this thing that needs some attention. And now because you don't have a job, you can suddenly give some time to this and suddenly you find yourself actually thankful that you were out of work during that season so you could help with that. Suffering is a part of life. From the very moment we, we scream out of the womb to the very moment we take our last breath, we encounter suffering. Now, there are some people who actually seek out suffering, like my friend Mark. My friend Mark was the youth pastor at the church where I was on staff. And I love Mark deeply and dearly. Mark loves Jesus. He is now a counselor. I would not hesitate to recommend him to anyone. But Mark is crazy. All right, M Mark has intentionally, just because, decided, I'm just going to fast from food for two weeks. He also, another time, well, as a youth pastor, he would take groups of students to Mexico on these missions trips. He would sleep on the floor. Didn't care if it was concrete, didn't care if it was dirt. That's where he slept the entire week. He also would not shower the entire week. Glad I was not on those missions trips with Mark. Also, one day, Mark just woke up like at 4 a.m., 5 a.m. and decided, I'm just going to go on a walk and only takes with him a water bottle. Two days later, he calls his wife. Hey, here's where I'm at. You want to come pick me up? Like, he just goes and does these crazy things. Well, I remember asking him, Mark, why do you do this? Why do you seek out suffering? He said, because when I'm struggling, when it, things are difficult, that is when I feel closest to God. Now, for the rest of us normal people, those of us with sanity, we are the opposite of Mark. We don't seek it out. We do everything we can to avoid it. Like, if the temperature in the house is just a couple degrees too hot, we're, we're lowering the AC. You know, we, the minute a hunger pang comes, we're in the kitchen. As soon as the thoughts just keep coming and the emotions are just out of whack, we try to numb it with Netflix or music. That when the relationship starts to get a little difficult, we don't reply to the text, we avoid social media. We do what we can to avoid talking to them because we don't like suffering. The problem, though, is if we spend all of our lives running from suffering, we rob ourselves of the moments like Deb experienced. The moments when you suddenly see glimmers of hope and joy and peace in the least likely place 
And those are the moments that you remember. But if all you do is constantly avoid it, you miss out. So today we're going to talk about suffering. Now, we're not going to glamorize it. We're not going to definitely seek it out like Mark does. I think life has enough suffering as it is. But we are going to look at what do you do when suffering comes? Because I think we shouldn't be running from it. I think there's something else we should do. So to help us see this subject today, I invite you to open up to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to finish up the, uh, uh, chapter 1 uh, today before we uh, take a five-week break in Colossians to uh, do the Imago Day series. We'll be doing verses uh, 24 through 29 today. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, we're going to put the scripture on the screen because we really want you to study with us. Uh, but at Riverwood, we, we open up the scriptures every single week, so we really want you to have one in hand. Uh, we think that practicing opening it up here on Sunday just makes it a little easier to open it up during the week. So if you don't own a Bible and would love to have a paper copy, we've got two different translations back on our uh, resource table. Please stop by there. Uh, ask me or ask someone who looks like maybe they know what they're, they're doing and uh, ask them which translation might fit you best and we'll, we'll get one into your hands. And then that's our gift to you. That's your Bible. And then if, if you have a, a phone, we encourage you, download a Bible to your phone. Uh, that way, uh, wherever you go with your phone, you always have a Bible available. And uh, we just would love for you to train your thumb to just not always open Instagram, but to actually open your Bible app. All right? So we're going to do Colossians 1, 24 through 29. So you know what? Let's, let's uh, pray as we uh, go into this, and then we'll read. So Heavenly Father, uh, we are about to come to these uh, scriptures that uh, were written way before any of us ever entered uh, life on this earth, and these things will be here way after we are gone. And so even though we come at this with our own backgrounds, our own viewpoints, uh, our own biases, we pray that you would crack through all of that and help us to see what you have for us today. God, I believe you want to call these people to live fully for you. And so even though we are all at different places on our spiritual journey, I trust that you can say exactly what you need to say to these people exactly where they're at to help them go in that next place in, your, in, the, in the, their faith in you. So, Father, for the person who's here today that does not know you, I pray you'd help them to, to see you vividly and see your love and that they would choose today to follow you. For the person who's been struggling, they've been suffering, that today they would hear what you are calling them to do. And, and for those of us who maybe right now life is great, but yet some suffering may be coming Help us to be ready to learn through this so that we can be the people you call us to be. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. In my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Just a few years ago, uh, if I had been sitting where you are and I heard a pastor preach this, I don't know if I would have heard verses 25 through 29. I think I would have got stuck at verse 24. Because verse 24 confused the heck out of me. I uh, uh, used to tell people that one of my favorite books was Colossians, and, th and that's true. 
But what I didn't tell them was, yeah, but there's this one verse in chapter 4 that I just don't get. And so I used to kind of try to avoid it uh, because it, it made me uncomfortable. And here's why. As I studied the scriptures, I, I, I believed that the scriptures taught that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was sufficient, that it was enough for the forgiveness of our sins and, and for our complete sanctification. And yet, when I read this, I see Paul saying that he is filling up in his flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So which is it? Is the cross enough or is there something lacking that Paul has to fill up in himself? Or by extension, is this for all believers? So you and I, if you're a Jesus follower, have to add this into our life. Like we have to fill up these lackings. Which is it? Now you can understand why the apostle Peter when he wrote 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 to 16, he said that some of Paul's writings are hard to understand. I think maybe he had Colossians 1.24 in mind when he wrote that. So I want to take you on the journey that I kind of went through in order to understand what I believe Paul is saying here, and therefore it then helps us understand the rest of today's passage. Um, one of the key things to do when you encounter difficulties like this is to put it in context. So many times we struggle with passages because we're only looking at just it. It's like we rip it out of, of what it's inside of. I mean, that, this is a great way. If you want to start a cult, find a verse, pull it out, and then build some huge doctrine off of it, ignoring the entire rest of the Bible, right? Now, what we need to do is put it in context. Now, there's different types of context, all right? There's the immediate context, like what comes right before and right after. We're going to do that here in just a moment. Then, how does it fit within the context of the entire letter or the entire book? Also, how does it fit within the context of everything like that author has written if they've written more than one book or letter? And then, how does it fit in all of Scripture? Right? So don't let one thing just sit all by itself. Try to see how it's connected. Because if we believe the Scriptures are written by God, therefore, He has been consistent. So let's see how does this fit with everything else. Along with that, you can also see how does it fit in historical context, right? What was happening at the time that these things were written? What, what, like, who was the author? What was their approach? What was their background? Who were they writing to? That flavored some of the ways they wrote certain things, right? So put it in context. So the easiest type of context to put it in is the immediate because you're right there in it. So that's what I did. And what I noticed is back in verse 23 and again down in verse 25, Paul says that he is a minister, right? In, in verse 23, he says that he's a minister of the gospel. And then down in verse 25, I mean, in the last word in verse 24 is church. And he says then in verse 25, of which I became a minister, right? So that's cluing me in. As he's talking in verse 24 about he in his sufferings is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. He's tying it to his calling as an apostle, a pastor, a minister, Right? So that, that was kind of cluing me in that maybe this isn't so much about Jesus as it is about Paul. Then I've tried to put it in context in the entire letter. If you were with us two weeks ago, we heard Paul give us this incredibly powerful, beautiful poem all about Jesus. We saw in verses 15 through 20 that Jesus is God. He is God of all things. And as God, he is over all things, creator of all things, sustainer of all things. And in verse 20, we saw he's the reconciler of all things. Well, in verse 20, Paul makes it very clear that these things are reconciled with Jesus, 
by the blood of his cross. Now, if there was something lacking in the cross, Paul could not write that therefore Jesus is able to reconcile all things. So this was another clue to me that I was misunderstanding verse 24. It's not that there was anything lacking in the cross itself, that there's something else going on. So going back to verse 24, what we notice is he says that he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. Now, when we hear Christ's afflictions and body, I don't know about you, but in my mind, passion of the Christ. Like, I see this, like, really bloody figure, crown of thorn on his head, ripped up back. I mean, it's just a grotesque picture. But that's not what Paul is talking about. Notice, he defines his body. The body he's talking here of Jesus is the church. So he's not talking about the physical body of Christ. He's talking about the spiritual body of Christ, which makes sense if you know Paul's story. If you're not familiar with Paul's story, Paul, before he became an apostle, was a, a, a Jewish man who was rising up the ranks of leadership. He was on track to become one of the greatest rabbis Judaism had ever uh, seen. Paul was also known as Saul, and, and the, the Jews really respected Saul. Saul was so zealous for his Jewish faith, he actually approved of the death of anyone who proclaimed Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, and he actually was going around trying to arrest people. So after we meet Saul in Acts chapter 8, in Acts 9, we see him go to the Sanhedrin, to the, the, the high court, ask for letters to be given permission to go to the city of Damascus. He's heard that there are some people there who claim Jesus is the Messiah. He's going to go there, have them arrested, and drag them back to Jerusalem. But on the way, he meets Jesus. Jesus shows up, blinding light, Paul, Paul's, you know, pushing away, like, what, what is going on? And out of this light comes the voice of Jesus. And I want you to hear the conversation they have. And falling to the ground, he, Paul, heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he, Paul, said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, Paul had never met Jesus. Right? He, he thought this whole Jesus thing was kind of a fabrication. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there was this carpenter named Jesus from Nazareth. I heard all the stories about all the supposed miracles. But the dude did not rise from the dead. This is all fabricated. This is a threat to our faith. But he's never met Jesus. And yet when Jesus shows up, he says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? What, what, what's going on? It's because when anyone believes upon Jesus, they put their faith in him, they believe he truly is the Jewish Messiah that God sent, not just for the Jewish people, but also for Gentiles to die on a cross for our sins, but he rose again from the dead. When you believe that, you become part of the church, and the church is considered the body of Christ. And so when Paul was inflicting pain and suffering upon Jesus' followers, it was as if he was doing it to Christ. Well, now Jesus changed his life through that moment. Paul begins to travel around instead of trying to arrest Jesus' followers. He's trying to make Jesus' followers and ends up eventually being arrested himself. And he realizes that when I suffer, Christ suffers 
with me. That the persecution done against me as a minister of the gospel, it's as if that is being done against Jesus himself. Which means if you are a follower of Jesus, anytime you suffer, Christ is right with you. The things being done against you, it's, it's like it's actually being done to him. Because he is with you. He is for you. Through his Holy Spirit, he is in you. You are never alone. So the deep struggle you may be having in your suffering, you've got to remember, Christ is with me. So as I began to see these things in verse 24, I started becoming more and more comfortable with it. But there was still another part that just didn't make sense to me. It was the very first phrase. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings. I don't know about you, but I don't rejoice in my sufferings. How is it that Paul was saying, I rejoice in these things? Because you've got to think about Paul's suffering. Right? As he's writing this letter, he's in prison in Rome. Now, he's under house arrest, so it was probably a little more comfortable than you know, behind some sort of you know, bar and chains and just ignored and forgotten and given no food. But he's always under guard. Yes, he can have visitors who come to him, but he can't just go on vacation. He can't take off and go and plant another church. He, he's, he's stuck And if he gets out of line, it could be his life. Who knows if he's being beaten? But even if his suffering was just that house arrest, which wouldn't be that bad if he had, you know, Netflix available. But you've got to look at his whole story. He tells us that twice he is given the the, uh, whips, lashes, 39 times on his back. And that happened to him twice. The dude was shipwrecked on a ship that got ripped apart They thought they were going to drown and die. They end up on an island. As they're trying to survive on this island, a a snake comes out and bites him on the arm, and it's a poisonous snake. He also, having been this man who was going to rise within the ranks of Judaism, is now mocked. People who used to be his friends are now saying the most vicious, vile things against him. And yet he's saying, I rejoice. How? How? Well, because I think he believed that his sufferings was actually helping his cause. Look down at verses 28 and 29. He says, him, referring to Jesus, him we proclaim, all right? So we're going to proclaim Jesus, his death and resurrection. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul believes that all of this suffering actually helps the cause go forward because he realized the reason I'm in prison is because God gets me off the church planning circuit So my attention is not on, hey, what city should I go to next? How am I going to afford to pay for a ship? Where are we going to get our next meal? Instead, I'm stuck. I'm I'm right here. And so my ministry is now writing letters. The majority of the letters we have that Paul wrote were written from that prison cell. He's writing these letters to churches like the Colossians to say, follow Jesus. Him we proclaim. And he realizes, if I had just continued doing ministry the way I had done it, I wouldn't have this opportunity. And so he finds himself thankful for the time out because he now has this opportunity to focus. And so he rejoices in his sufferings. 
He also knows the beatings, the mocking, all of that suffering. The word of those has spread. And other people, when, because the suffering's so hard, they'd, they'd recant their faith, they'd give up, they'd quit, but he doesn't. He keeps going. And people are just, they remark about it. They can't believe it. How does he do it? And it's causing the word to continue to spread. And for that, he rejoices because for this I toil. Now, if you're not there yet, if you're not at this place where you can say, I rejoice in my sufferings, that's okay. So I'll, I'll be honest, I'm not there yet either. Like, there's some days it's, it's just hard. I, I've shared the story, but for those of you who maybe are new or, or forgot, but the first few years of planting Riverwood were hard, so hard. People that I thought were in with this with us left. Supporters that, that said, hey, we're behind you quit or never showed up. You know, the things that also were just said, I had pastors telling me, Aaron, it's too small. It's not viable. You need to quit. Also, I remember being at a church planning conference. It's this workshop. And I remember the guy standing up there saying, the three most effective things for a successful church plant are the church planter, the church planter, and the church planter. No pressure. So, hey, if it's not going right, because of the church planner. He must not be very good. Must not know what he's doing. You know, he doesn't dress right, doesn't have a goatee, doesn't have tats, doesn't drink coffee. This dude is not qualified at all to plant a church. And so I struggled. I was down. It was hard when people said, hey, how's your new church doing? Well, people were telling me I should actually close it. And to be honest, I want to follow. I want to quit. It's hard. But instead, I did the Iowa thing and smile. Good, good, yeah, yeah, things are going good. I'll just cry when I'm in the pool because no one can see it because my face is already wet. <laughs> the reason it was so hard, the reason I couldn't rejoice in my sufferings is because my eyes were on me and my circumstances. The church was not going like everyone said it should. I remember meeting a pastor. He's like, hey, how long's your church been going? At that time, I think we were three years. He goes, what are you running now, like 150? No, like 30? I felt like a failure. My eyes were on me and my circumstances. I think if Paul's eyes were on himself and his circumstances, I'm in jail, I've been shipwrecked, I've been beaten, I'm being mocked, my name is a curse word, I give up. But instead, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings because he got his eyes off of himself and his circumstances. And instead, he put his eyes on Christ. Look at verses 26 and 27. He says, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Don't be thrown off by that word mystery. Uh, when we think of a mystery, we think of something that, that can't be solved. As soon as you solve it, it's no longer a mystery. For them, musterion, the Greek word, it, it means hidden or secret. It, 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 was the, it was not known. They thought God was just a God for the Jews. And then suddenly, when Jesus dies on the cross and through Peter says, no, this was for everyone, suddenly the mystery is solved. It's, it's, shown, it's put out there. The secret has been revealed. 
It's just that there are people who hear the secret, the mystery of Christ, and they don't believe it. It's still strange to them. But then there are people like Paul and the Colossian believers and some of you who had a moment when they realized it's true. There really is a God who sent his one and only son to live a sinless life but go and die in the sinner's place. And when they realize this, they're blown away. They can't believe the story's true. It's right there in front of them. It's not a mystery. It's not a secret. And yet for those who eyes, spiritual eyes are closed, they don't get it. And Paul is sitting there saying, I can't believe it. Like this Jewish Messiah dies for the Gentiles. And the same spirit that came to us Jews is for them as well. This mystery is Christ in them, the hope of glory. Even in the midst of the suffering, Christ is at work. And if Christ can forgive me, a guy who used to travel around killing Jesus' followers, and forgive me and allow me to go and make Jesus' followers, he can do it for anyone. That is what keeps me going. So if, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, what I encourage you to do is lift your eyes off of your circumstances and yourself and put your eyes on Christ. Look to him. God loves you so much. He didn't want you to be separated from him because of sin. He gave his life for you. He paid the penalty to bring you back into relationship with him. Most people, when they realize this story is true, they, they mark the moment in prayer. They find themselves confessing their sin, acknowledging how they have fallen short, but they realize, Jesus, you did this for me. And so they give their life to follow him. Now, some people will try and tell you, give your life to Jesus and you'll have peace and joy and happiness. Yeah, but they make it sound like all that suffering goes away. But here we're looking at Paul going through deep suffering. So if you give your life to Jesus, it doesn't make, it's not magic. But what it is, is Jesus now is with you in the midst of it. And you have something to help lift your eyes up and carry you through it. And you might then just experience something like Deb did or I have, or others, that in the midst of this hard time, you suddenly see glimmers of hope. You have moments of joy. You experience a peace that surpasses understanding. You sense God's presence with you. And you suddenly find yourself thankful for the suffering. That is why the psalmist said in Psalm 121, I lift my eyes up, up to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. If you are struggling and suffering, lift your eyes up. Get them off of yourself and your circumstances and put them on Jesus and let him carry you through this time. I can't think of a better way for us to put our eyes on Jesus right now than through communion. And so I'll invite Jake to come on up here and I just invite you to take a moment to pray, to let God just minister to you that if you are struggling with, with anything at all, a relationship, something at work, uh, something that might be coming up in the future, maybe something from your past, whatever it is, that right now you just ask God to help you lift your eyes up and put your, your focus on Jesus. So Heavenly Father, as we prepare to come to these communion elements, I pray that you would minister right now to your people. You would draw their hearts, you draw their minds to you, Jesus, who was crucified for us. But yet Jesus, death could not keep you down. 
you raised yourself from the dead, and now you invite us to follow you. And so for that person here that, that has not put their faith in you, the person who's joining us online, the person who's listening to the podcast, that for some reason they've listened to this far, that now you would bring them into your family, that you, just as you did for Paul and you've done for, for millions and billions of others, that you would help them right now to confess their sin and put their faith fully in you. Father, I pray for my brother and sister in Christ who's struggling, that right now through these elements, as they hold that bread, as they hold that cup, they would realize that that represents the body and blood of Jesus that was given so freely for them because of love. It is absolutely amazing how much we can endure because of something we want or someone we love. Paul was able to endure his suffering, Father, because of his love for the Colossians. And you, Jesus, were able to go through the cross because of your love for us. And so I pray you'd help us to be filled with that kind of love so that we could endure. We can work through the suffering. And in the midst of it, we see your goodness, your grace, your power, your presence. So the God, that's why I'm thankful that you are an omnipresent God. That means you're everywhere all the time, which means you're right here. And God, this is your church. These are your people. You know their stories. You know their fears. You know their sufferings. You know their joys. So Father, I pray that you just minister to them as they come to these communion elements. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you uh, need some time to just pray, totally feel free to just stay where you're at. If you need to kneel, please feel free to do so. Uh, if you, though, feel so compelled at any time during the song, you have the freedom to go to these communion elements. I just ask that you be that follower of Jesus. If you're not that follower of Jesus yet, I'm going to ask that you very respectfully not take these elements. It isn't because we're trying to keep something from you. It's that these elements point to Jesus. And so by taking them, consuming them, we're saying that his story of dying on the cross for us is a part of who we are. And if, if that's not you yet, I'll just ask that you very respectfully abstain. Instead, I encourage you to pray that as Jake leads us in a song, you would just ask God to help you see, is it true? Is this whole thing that that guy up on the stage talked about true? Is there a God who loves me so much that he sent his one and only son into this world to die the death I should have died for my sin so that I could be forgiven and come into a relationship with him? So talk to God. This time is for you. But if you're a follower of Jesus, even if this is your first time with us, I invite you to come because there's no better way for us to put our eyes on Christ, to get him off of ourselves and our circumstance through communion. So let us do this now in remembrance of him.